0: Hi, I'm Tai Hui, the Chief Market Strategist of Asia-Pacific from J.P. Morgan Asset Management, and welcome to this special episode of On Investor's Minds. Now, on March 10th, the U.S. regulator closed Silicon Valley Bank, and it also shut Signature Bank later in the week, with the former being the second largest bank failure in U.S. history. This led to global investors' concerns on financial stability, and some people even questioned whether this could be the start of another financial crisis. The good news was that the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department were quick to implement policy to protect depositors and reinforce confidence and limit the risk of bank runs. But since the investors and creditors of SVB is not protected, we've also seen considerable sell-off in U.S. regional bank stocks on March 13th. Many would argue that this is the result of the Fed ending ultra-loose monetary policy, and as a result, ending with a higher rate environment. This is also raising the risk of an economic recession in the US in the coming months. I'm delighted to share our insights and thoughts on this event from our global chief strategist, Dr. David Kelly. He will dissect what has happened so far, what this means for the U.S. economy, Fed consideration on much policy, and also investment implications. Thank you all for joining us this morning.
1: Um, it's obviously a busy day here, and I'm sure uh, a lot of people are wondering you know, what to make of the crisis that's unfolding, um, and uh, many of you have to talk to investors about what's going on. And whether you're looking at this in terms of your own investments, or um, as an institutional investor, or uh, when, whether you're advising individual investors or um, clients on how to invest in this environment, I think the most important thing is to have a structure and how you approach the problem. I, I, we've, we've obviously been through many crises over the years: the Great Financial Crisis, the pandemic recession, other uh, variants of, of banking crises over the years. I think. The the correct thing to do is just come up with the structure and go through the pieces, and then as events uh, unfold, you can sort of change, sort of how you think about different parts of the story. But at least you've got a structure behind the story. So with that in mind, there are seven things I want to talk about this morning, and then uh, as Stephanie said, you please send in some questions, and I'd be happy to try to address them at the end. So first, want to just summarize what has happened. Second, talk about why it has happened. Third, talk about how the government has responded. Fourth, talk about how markets have responded. Fifth, talk about what we think this all means for the economy. Sixth, what does it mean for the path of monetary policy going forward in the federal funds rate? And finally, seventh, what does it mean for investing at this point? So I want to talk about those seven things and, and then try to address some questions. So first of all, just to summarize what's happened, I suppose this particular saga really can be traced back to about last Tuesday or Wednesday. It's as recent as that. Um, so last Tuesday, Chairman Powell went up to Congress, and in his semiannual Humphrey Hawkins testimony, or at least it used to be called the Humphrey Hawkins testimony, um, he testified both on Tuesday, and then he used the same remarks on Wednesday. And in that testimony, he struck a hawkish tone. He talked about how some of the economic data have been strong. Uh, Recently, the data for January were very strong, although I think there's some seasonal issues with it. But because of that, the Federal Reserve was thinking about whether they may need to raise rates faster, and they would probably end up at a higher level of interest rates than had previously been anticipated. So that's what he said on on Tuesday and Wednesday. And on Wednesday, uh, we saw the two-year Treasury note um, hit its highest level. Uh, since uh, before the great financial crisis, uh, as people saw pricing in aggressive further Fed tightening. In fact, at that point, if you look at the Fed Fund's futures markets, what, what market participants were pricing in was about a 70% shot the Federal Reserve was going to go by uh, increase rates by 50 basis points next week. And then they were going to go another 25 basis points in May and then another 25 basis points in June. And there was even some betting on a further rate hike in July, pushing rates one and a quarter percent above their current level for the federal funds rate, which is four and a half to four and three quarters percent. So that was pretty hawkish. Um, on Wednesday, uh, we saw a um, the failure of a relatively small bank, Silvergate Bank. It had 11 billion in assets, which I suppose for an individual is not a, a small number. For a bank, it's a pretty small number. Um, And Silvergate had really catered very much to the crypto industry. And so as crypto had collapsed, uh, Silvergate ran into trouble. But it also ran into trouble for some reasons that are going to become familiar in the rest of this discussion, uh, namely that it had a portfolio of long-term loans, uh, which got battered by rising interest rates. So Silvergate wraps up on on Wednesday. And on the same day on Wednesday, um, Silicon Valley Bank announced that it had been liquidating its available for sale portfolio of securities, and it wanted to do an, an equity issuance on Friday. And that really put the, the cat among the pigeons, so to speak, because people were really worried that, well, Silverga- or uh, Silicon Valley Bank really has a pretty unusual look to it. Um, and uh, because of that, we saw massive outflows from Silicon Valley Bank uh, on Thursday and Friday, um, and on Friday, the uh, federal authorities, Federal Reserve, FDIC, stepped in, and they uh, essentially shut it down. Um, and so that's where things were left on Friday. Then over the weekend, federal regulators were working the problem. They knew that this was not just a problem about um, Silicon Valley Bank; that there were other potential problems. There was a lot of pressure in the stock prices on um, regional banks, and on Sunday. New York regulators wound down another institution called Signature Bank. Now, just to put this in context, Silvergate had about 11 billion in assets. Um, Silicon Valley Bank had, uh, close to $200 billion in assets. Uh, Signature had about, uh, $110 billion in assets. So none of the mega banks were all, you know, but particularly when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank, it was the 16th largest bank in the United States in terms of assets. Um, so, on Sunday, this, this announcement came out on Sunday, yesterday evening at, uh, 6.30 PM, a joint statement from the Treasury, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC. And you can, you can find it on the Federal Reserve's website announcing that they were going to make a special provision for, um, for Silicon Valley Bank by which all depositors, not just those with accounts up to $250,000, but all depositors would be made whole as of Monday, as of today, and they also announced at the same time that the, that the the wind up of Signature Bank and the fact that all of their depositors would also, because they, uh, because this bank was seen as being a systematic threat to the uh, to the system, all of their depositors, not just the up to two hundred fifty thousand crowd, but the whole bunch would get fully reimbursed uh, if they want to pull their money out on Monday. At the same time, uh, the government uh, announced uh, a. A backstop, a new fund, uh, which uh, banks could draw on uh, to support their loans. And as collateral, they could use any security or any high-quality security priced at par. So even if rising interest rates had made these securities worth less, doesn't matter. You can use it as 100% of, of face value um, as security for loans. And so that's, where, that's sort of what has happened to this, to this point. Why has it happened? Well, in the case of Silvergate, I think a lot of it, of course, has to do with the collapse of uh, Bitcoin prices and, and the turmoil and the bankruptcy of FTX and the turmoil in the crypto industry in general. Um, but when it comes to Silicon Valley Bank, um, it was a, a more, uh, you know, it wasn't just a crypto problem. It was really actually much more about uh, really three things. Uh, one, um, their, uh, their asset base. Two their deposit base, and three, their customer base. So let's start actually with the deposit base. That's really where I should start. So the problem with Silicon Valley Bank is that it had grown to be the 16th largest institution in the United States, um, but it actually had very few branches, just a handful of branches. Um, and uh, the reason it grew was because it was servicing a whole pile of uh, very well-funded uh, startup companies, which are getting money from venture capitalists, and were setting uh, setting up uh, um, operations and growing their operations. Uh, and the the bank uh, would, in some cases, lend the money, but they would also uh, run their deposits. And these, so when the you know all these startup companies get money from venture capitalists, they put it in deposit. They have to burn through this cash. And and so this is a lot of essentially corporate money. And about 86 percent of the deposits were of a size that were above that $250,000 FDIC guarantee limit. And that made them vulnerable right off the bat. Because if, you, if, if you've got money in the bank, but you've got money in your checking account of $10,000, and of course, you need to, you know, those of you advising individual investors, remind them that the FDIC backstop is good up to $250,000. So if you're worried about your $10,000 sitting in your checking account or in a, in a, um, a savings account at your local bank, uh, you don't have to worry about it. The FDIC is covering that. But in the case of Silicon Valley Bank, it was 86% was above this limit, and that made the bank vulnerable to runs. Because if you think the bank is going to get wound up, and you don't think you're going to get reimbursed if the bank goes under, uh, then you want to get your money out now. And so over the course of Thursday and Friday, about $40 billion of deposits fled. Uh, uh, and of course, because that Silicon Valley Bank had to you know, cancel the... Uh, it's, its uh, equity issuance and uh, was uh, essentially uh, uh, resolved or was taken or essentially collapsed. And the, the government, government regulators uh, basically took it over and said, you can get your money on, on, on Monday if it's under $250,000. So one of the problems was the depositor base is very concentrated among large um, corporate institutions. A much smaller part was, uh, was retail. Now, in comparison, so silicon valley bank had that problem signature bank also had that problem even to a larger extent almost 100 of the deposits of signature bank were not insured but for the banking industry in general only about 50 percent roughly 50 percent of it difference from bank to bank but 50 percent of deposits are in that uninsured category so it was very concentrated in, in these two banks among the bigger banks in, in the united states the second problem they had uh, was to do with their asset base so they grew their deposits very fast in Silicon Valley Bank. In fact, they they quadrupled the deposits, more than quadrupled the deposits within five years. Now, if you're pu- pulling in money that fast, what are you gonna do with it? You can't do enough due diligence on loans to mom and pop stores or to, to on real estate or whatever. You can't do it fast enough. So what they did is they bought a whole pile of securities. Now, high quality securities, government bonds for the most part. The problem is that while well, there's no credit risk involved in government bonds, there certainly is duration risk. And another thing they did, which was a little bit unusual, is most of those bonds they put in their hold to maturity camp rather than their available for sale camp. Now, the available for sale stuff gets gets marked up and marked down with market interest rates. But the hold for maturity or to maturity uh, bucket of assets doesn't. And so they had a big hole when interest rates went up, which wasn't quite apparent unless you actually did the math on what their uh, hold to maturity balance sheet really was, was, or part of the balance sheet was really worth. But they really got clobbered because of all these high-quality government bonds, because as the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, those bonds were worth less. And that was eroding their, their equity, um, and that's really what the, what the problem was on the asset side. And again, um, for most banks in the United States, they've got a much more, particularly the largest banks, they have, first of all, more capital relative to assets to start with. And they certainly have a much more diversified portfolio of investments uh, rather than just, uh, you know, so heavily concentrated in securities. Um, so those were two of the problems we had. And, and you know, these problems come from the fact that, and I, and I don't want to get away from this point, the Federal Reserve for 15 years kept rates at very low levels. And I understand it during the great financial crisis, and I understand it for the sort of the most dangerous months around the uh, the pandemic, but for the most part, as the US economy has grown, they still kept rates at an abnormally low level, negative real interest rates, um, because they thought that was somehow going to stimulate economic growth. But what it did do is it fostered asset bubbles. And it, the biggest bubble it fostered was really the uh, the bubble that we saw um, in uh, the bond market. So, um, so that really sort of set us up so that when the Federal Reserve raised rates, you're going to have a problem. So I think this is, and the third thing that I think was important um, is just the slowdown in business. So the crypto problem was a big problem for um, for Silvergate. They, they were essentially a crypto. Uh, they took in crypto deposits. They held it in a traditional bank. I mean, it is you know oddly enough, they they you know people were depositing good old dollars they were getting for selling their crypto in, in the bank. But still, they they were very vulnerable to withdrawals if something went wrong with the crypto industry, and it certainly has. And that was also the case for Signature Bank. Um, so that their client base was uh, way too dominated by crypto. Uh, for Silicon Valley Bank, it wasn't so so much crypto. It was, it was really this uh, a lot of these startup companies. But still, as the technology sector has gotten into trouble, and we've seen cutbacks in in recent months, we have seen a, a drying up of venture capital, which has uh, caused uh, more of a cash burn by these companies. And so we were seeing net withdrawals because of the industry they were in. They were too concentrated to some extent. So that's what happened, and of course, the you know the the danger is that uh, when this happens, people say, "Well, who's what's the next shoe to drop? Maybe I should take my money out." And so the the government really felt that it had to step in and do something. Now, a lot of people have speculated over the weekend that the government would find some buyer for um, Silicon Valley Bank, and I'm not privy to any of the um, negotiations or behind the scenes stuff that was going on. I will say that as a general rule, I think that a lot of banks that were in the buying of other financial institutions business back in 2008 feel a little bit, a little bit bruised by that experience. And I think a lot of banks were shy of trying to um, sort of catch a falling knife in terms of being involved in the takeover. And so the government knew that it had to move fast. So what it did is it said, look, we're just going, let's just not beat around the bush here. Any deposits you've got in these banks, they're safe. You get fully re- re- uh, refunded. That's true for Silicon Valley Bank. It's true for Signature Bank. And I think there's sort of an implicit in that that the government's not going to stand idly by and like let some other bank, um, a bigger bank, uh, get into this kind of trouble. It will. It may not. It may not. And I think the government's been very clear in this. They do not want to bail out the shareholders of the banks. They do not want to bail out the management of the banks. Um, but they do want to protect the depositors in the banks. The people who, just, who weren't making an investment in the bank, they just put the money in the bank. And maybe there is some moral hazard to that one too, um, but I think uh, some, sometimes you you have to um, you know just make decisions in terms of what's best for the economy and the integrity of the financial system. And I think that's why they did what they did over the weekend. Um, so that's that's where we are to this point. And of course, we've seen some volatility this morning. I think the 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 most interesting part of the volatility and of the market response has been what it's meant for. Interest rates. So let me talk about that. If you, as I said, if you go back to last Wednesday, people were pricing in uh, between 100 and 125 basis points of extra tightening. Uh, By Friday, they'd taken a lot of that out. Uh, By uh, six o'clock this morning, they take some more of it out, and even since then, markets have moved. And so, what we're seeing right now, if you look at the Fed funds futures market is the markets are narrowly holding on to the idea the Federal Reserve will raise rates by 25 basis points in March. But that's it. Uh, And they won't raise rates any further. And then they let, um, in fact, markets are also pricing in the idea that the Federal Reserve will cut rates later on this year and then cut rates a number of times in 2024. Um, That's a very dramatic move. We've seen the uh, 10-year Treasury yield uh, go back from uh, over 4%. Um, last uh, last week, or sorry, at the start of this month, uh, to about 3.45% uh, before this call started. Uh, so we've seen a very dramatic move in the bond market. The US equity market seems to be holding up pretty well, although the banking sector is getting clobbered. Um, the European, um, uh, European stocks are getting hurt quite badly, and European banks in particular are getting hurt quite badly. Probably because the European banks also have a lot of government bonds, which are underwater on their balance sheet, and they are to some extent vulnerable to the same issue of what happens if these uh, uh, if if these portfolios have to be marked to market. Um, So that's what that's what's happened to markets so far. Uh, You know, when talking to clients, I think it's it's really hard to make predictions, and we shouldn't make predictions about the short term back and forth. It can be pretty frenetic and and markets work off emotion very much in the the short run. But I think the next question we have to look at is, you know, there probably will be waves of fear before this thing calms down. The the real question I think is, does it do any long-term economic damage? Because what we've found in the past is if you have a crisis that affects markets and it doesn't impact the economy in a significant way, uh, then markets recover and 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 conversely. Um, so where were we in the economy before going into this? Well, it looks like we were in a pretty strong economic position. Uh, we had over 300,000 jobs added uh, in the month of February. Uh, the economy did seem to be still producing plenty of jobs. Uh, retail sales were very strong for January, as was employment. Uh, the market PMI indices looked pretty good. It looked like the US economy was Yes, going to slow down. I think that was that was likely, but it certainly was not slowing down dramatically. And meanwhile, the European economy and the UK economy seemed to be doing better, much better than people had feared. Uh, and we'd seen the uh, Chinese economy pick up significantly following uh, the reversal of COVID nineteen policies. Uh, when you look at the economy now, I think that this does this these these events do. Reduce the or or do sort of dampen down prospects for economic growth. Now, unlike the housing crisis, I don't expect to see dramatic disruption in terms of people not being able to get credit. First of all, there's no real sector of the economy that is being adversely affected by this directly. I, and I'm not going to count crypto as a real sector of the economy because I regard crypto as being entirely imaginary to start with. Uh, but but there's no real sector of the economy like. Um, technology spending or investment spending in general, uh, construction, vehicle sales, consumer spending. There's no sector that I think is very exuberant right now, which is going to take it on the chin. Um, but what we are possibly going to see is a further drag on credit, particularly if you're a uh, a company that's relying on, um, on smaller banks to and maybe regional banks to fund your operations. And we may see some, some tightening up in terms of uh, being more careful about being ma- making loans. We've already seen the senior loan officer survey well before this, show that banks were getting a little bit more reluctant to lend. I think you could see some increase of that. You can also see some decline in business confidence, some decline in consumer confidence. I mean, for for the most part, a lot of people just want to wait and see. But as I said many years ago in, 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 you know, in previous recessions, the three most dangerous words in, the, in economics are wait and see. When everybody decides to wait and see what they eventually see is not good. And the problem is this kind of crisis can cause a lot of people to wait and see. So I think this adds drag to the economy. I still think that the economy has some resilience to it. Um, I think that there's still that excess demand for labor helps us. The fact that we don't have overbuilt... Um, uh, cyclical sectors helps us, and the fact that the banking system, despite everything that's happened, is actually quite well capitalized. I think that that uh, that helps us. Um, but this certainly, I think, adds a little bit to the potential for a recession later on this year. I think that's sort of uh, you can sort of see that in the in the Fed Funds futures market. Um, and then on inflation, so we get an inflation report tomorrow. Uh, we are looking for about five tenths of a percent increase, which is a little bit above consensus and a 6.1% year over year increase. I would stress that even if we get 6.1, that's down from 6.3% in January. And we still think that over the course of, you know, over the course of the next few months, the CPI inflation rate will fall to about 4% year over year. I don't think it'll fall much more through the rest of the year because of the importance of owner's equivalent rent in the overall CPI, but the, in the following year, 2024, even without a recession, it's going, to truck, it's going to head down. This is an absolutely crucial point in terms of making an analysis from where we are, are right now. I believe that the whole issue is not whether inflation is going to fall, but how fast it's going to fall. Uh, if you look at yesterday, at Friday's employment report, we saw that wages uh, grew modestly. Um, by only two tenths of a percent in February, but more than that, much more important than that, this was the 23rd consecutive month in which the average hourly earnings for the, for workers did not um, reach the level of CPI inflation. What's what's going on here is, you know, people talk about a price-wage spiral. What we've got is a price-wage slinky. Yeah, of course. If inflation was high last year, you're going to want partial compensation for that. And companies are granting partial compensation, but they're not granting full compensation. So it's, you know, because of somewhat higher wages, you get a little bit more price increases, but it's all, it's like a sinky. It's coming slowly down the stairs. That's what it's doing. And I think, you know, between that, between economic weakness, uh, given, um, the, uh, you know, the weakness in demand and, and, and fear out of this, this, this crisis, uh, given the, uh, end of sort of some of the supply chain issues, Um, income inequality, uh, information technology making it easier for buyers to shop around, all these things will tend to push inflation down. And I believe that whether the Federal Reserve raises rates next week or not, whether we have a recession or not, uh, I believe inflation will come down steadily. And by the middle of this decade, we will be asking the question, how can we get inflation up to 2%, not how can we get it down to 2%. Um, What does this mean for? And I think that's where we're headed. And if we have a recession because of this, I expect the government will not make the same mistakes that have made back in two thousand eight. I think it will protect the financial system. I think we we may be on the edge of something, but I hold with the view that we are on the edge of a swamp, not the edge of a cliff. Uh, For interest rates from here, I do think the Fed. I you know the market is still pricing in a Fed rate hike next week, and we'll we'll see if things settle down very quickly here. Maybe that's possible. But I think it's more likely the Federal Reserve will just, uh, at an abundance of caution, to decide to pause. And in fact, I think if they do pause, they'll find they've got very little reason to get going again. So I think it's quite possible that the Fed won't raise rates another 25 basis points next week. They could, Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I think that's a very, very close call at this stage. I certainly don't think they should. And 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 let's talk about Fed policy in terms of exactly what's happened here. So. The big question that's going to remain after they dealt with, um, Signature Bank and after they dealt with Silicon Valley Bank is the asset base and, and, and after they put this backstop in for depositors is the actual quality of the asset base of the banks. Now, the banks have got a lot of assets. Their equity position, their, their tier one capital looks, um, you know, pretty good. Uh, but there are some embedded losses in there because of the level of interest rates. The best way of of making the banks whole at this stage is to push down long-term interest rates. And the Federal Reserve may not like that. It may think that its job is to quash inflation, but there there are small jobs and there are big jobs. And while inflation, they may think that inflation will come down a little bit more slowly um, if they were to let long rates come down at this point. Um, I think that 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 is a much... uh, Less important issue than uh, than trying to protect us from further contagion from this banking issue, and I think that's the way the Fed will probably see it. I think they'll say, you know, look, let's look at the balance of risks here. If we push rates back up, and that causes people to worry more about the balance sheets of these regional banks, that's going to be a much more tricky problem than inflation coming down just a little bit slower than we would like. And so, what does all it mean for investing? Um, I think for investors it's so important to, to not get caught up in the crises um we have a situation here where um yes there 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 is some contagion from this i expect we're going to see some market volatility but people have a habit of, of getting out when when they're scared and getting in when they feel comfortable and that's usually a great recipe for for selling low and buying high well i think we don't know the full full uh, fallout here uh, but if you look forward um, a, uh, a few quarters or a few years. I think what this does is it suggests that if anything, by 2024, we're going to have a lower rate environment than we thought we were going to have. And that low rate environment, so long as the economy has stabilized, that low rate econ- uh, environment should support higher um, stock prices and bond prices. So uh, we could have some volatility between now and then. You know, I don't think there's any point in trying to time the market. If you try and time the market, you've got to make two good choices. You've got to know when to get out you got to know when to get back in again. Um, and I think it's very, very hard to do that. What I do think is that if you look at valuations, valuations do not look unreasonable today in either the equity or fixed income markets, and they look positively cheap in terms of global equities. And so I think this is a time to take a deep breath, understand what's going on, keep updated on what's going on, have a structured approach to examining what's going on. But I think this is a
0: time to stick with a long-term plan. Thanks for your time. If you've not done so already, please subscribe to our podcast so that you can be kept updated on our answers to what are on investors' minds. This content is intended for information only, based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass. JP Morgan Asset Management is the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide.